Chapter 12 of The Star Chamber, an historical romance, volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Star Chamber, Volume 1, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Chapter 12, The Arrest and the Rescue. Lupo Volp had endeavored to dissuade Sir Giles from putting his design of arresting Jocelyn into immediate execution. Alleging the great risk he would incur, as well from the resolute character of the young man himself, who was certain to offer determined resistance, as from the temper of the company, which, being decidedly adverse to any such step, might occasion a disturbance that would probably result in the prisoner's rescue. "'In any case, Sir Giles,' said the wily scrivener, "'let me counsel you to tarry till the greater part of the guests be gone, and the assemblage outside dispersed, for I noted many turbulent prentices among the mob, who are sure to be troublesome. "'Since the young man shows no present disposition to quit the house,' Sir Giles replied, looking askance at Jocelyn, who just then had moved to another part of the room with Madame Bonaventure. There is no urgency, and it may be prudent to pause a few moments, as you suggest, good Lupo. But I will not suffer him to depart. I perceive from her gestures and glances that our tricksy hostess is plotting some scheme with him. Plot away, fair mistress. You must have more cunning than I give you credit for, if you outwit me a second time in the same day. I can guess what she proposes. You note that side door near them, Lupo? She is advising the youth's flight that way, and he, like a hare-brained fool, will not listen to the suggestion. But it will be well to catch the outlet. Hark ye, Lanier, he added to the promoter. Take three men with you, and go round quickly to the passage with which yon door communicates. Station yourselves near the outlet, and if Monchensy comes forth, arrest him instantly. You see the door I mean? About it, quick. And Lanier instantly departed with three of the Myrmidons. I would this arrest could be lawfully effected, Sir Giles, said Lupo Volp, by a sergeant-at-arms, or pursuivant. There would then be no risk. Again, I venture to counsel you to proceed regularly. No great delay would be occasioned if your worship went to Westminster and made a complaint against the young man before the council. In that case, a messenger of the court would be dispatched to attach his person, and even if he should quit the house in the meanwhile, Lanier will keep on his track. That were the surest course. As to the manner of proceeding, I conclude it will be by ore tenus. It is not likely that this youth's headstrong temper, coupled with his fantastic notions of honor, will permit him to deny your worship's accusation, and therefore his confession being written down and subscribed by himself will be exhibited against him when he is brought to the bar of the star chamber, and he will be judged ex ore suro. Your worship will make quick work of it. Cum confitent ereo cisus estigendum, replied Sir Giles. No one knows better than thou, good Lupo, how promptly and effectually the court of star chamber will vindicate its authority, and how severely it will punish those who derogate from its dignity. No part of the sentence shall be remitted with my consent. This insolent youth shall suffer to the same extent as Lanier. Pilloried, branded, mutilated, degraded, he shall serve as a warning to my enemies. Your worship can scarce make him more of a scarecrow than you have made of Lanier, Lupo remarked with a grin. But do you decide on applying in the first instance to the council? No, Sir Giles replied. I will not lose sight of him. He shall not have a chance of escape. Marked you not, Lupo, how the rash fool committed himself with Buckingham? And think you the proud Marquis would hold me blameless if, by accident, 
he should get off scot-free after such an outrage? But see, the room is well-nigh cleared. Only a few loiterers remain. The time is come. And he was about to order the attack when the disturbance outside reached his ears, and checked him for a moment. Sir Giles was considering what could be the cause of the tumult, and hesitating whether to go forth and support Sir Francis, in case he stood in need of assistance, when the discomfited Myrmidons rushed into the room. A few words sufficed to explain what had occurred, and indeed the bloody visages of some of the men showed how roughly they had been handled. Though greatly exasperated, Sir Giles was determined not to be balked of his prey, and fearing Jocelyn might escape in the confusion, which an attack upon the prentices would occasion, he gave the word for his instant seizure, and rushed towards him, as before related. How he was baffled has already been told. His wrath knew no bounds when the young man disappeared. He hurled himself furiously against the door, but it resisted all his efforts to burst it open. Suddenly the bolt was withdrawn, and Clement Lanier and his men stood before him. "'Have you secured him?' Sir Giles demanded, trying to descry the fugitive among them. "'Death and fiends! You have not let him escape?' "'No one has passed us except Madame Bonaventure,' the promoter replied. "'She was wholly unattended and came in this direction. "'We were stationed within yon antechamber, "'which appears to be the sole means of communication with this passage, "'and we ought therefore to have intercepted the young man when he came forth.' "'You were not wont to be thus short-sighted, Lanier. "'There must be some other mode of exit, which you have failed to discover,' "'Sir Giles cried furiously. "'Ha! Here it is!' he exclaimed, dashing aside a piece of tapestry, that seemed merely hung against the wall, but in reality concealed a short flight of steps. Purblind dolts that you are, not to find this out. You shall answer for your negligence hereafter, if we take him not. And accompanied by the troop, he hurried down the steps, which brought him to a lower room, communicating on one hand with a small court, and on the other with the kitchen and offices attached to the tavern. Directing Lanier to search the latter, Sir Giles rushed into the court, and uttered a shout of savage joy on perceiving Jocelyn, sword in hand, scaling a wall which separated the court from the bowling green. Some difficulty, it appeared, had occurred to the hostess in forcing open a private door in the yard leading to the green, which being rarely used, for the principal entrance was situated elsewhere, its fastenings were rusty and refused to act. This delay favored the pursuers, and on hearing their approach, Jocelyn strove to effect his retreat in the manner described but Sir Giles was further served, though unintentionally, by Madame Bonaventure, who succeeded in drawing back the rusty bolt at the very moment he came up, and no impediment now existing, the knight thrust her rudely aside and sprang through the doorway just as Jocelyn leaped from the wall. Disregarding Sir Giles's summons to surrender, the young man hurried on till he reached the middle of the bowling green, where, finding flight impossible, as there was no apparent outlet at the further end of the garden, while it was certain that the tipstaves would pluck him from the wall with their hooks if he attempted to clamber over it, he turned and stood upon his defense. Willing to have the credit of disarming him unaided, and confident in his own superior strength and skill, Sir Giles signed to his myrmidons to stand back, while he alone advanced towards the young man. A turn in his strong wrist would, he imagined, suffice to accomplish his purpose. But he found out his error the moment he engaged with his opponent. In dexterity and force, the latter was fully his match, while in nimbleness of body, Jocelyn surpassed him. The deadly glances thrown at him by the young man showed that the animosity of the latter would only be satisfied with blood. Changing his purpose, therefore, Sir Giles, in place of attempting to cross his antagonist's sword, 
rapidly disengaged his point and delivered a stoccata, or in modern terms of fence, a thrust in cart, over the arm, which was instantly parried. For some minutes the conflict continued without material success on either side. Holding his rapier short with the point towards his adversary's face, Jocelyn retreated a few paces at first, but then, charging in turn, speedily won back his ground. Stoccatas, imbrocatas, dridas, mandridas, and reversas were exchanged between them in a manner that delighted the Myrmidons, most of whom were amateurs of swordplay. Infuriated by the unexpected resistance he encountered, Sir Giles, at length, resolved to terminate the fight, and finding his antagonist constantly upon some sure ward, endeavored to reach him with a half-incartata, but instantly shifting his body with marvelous dexterity, Jocelyn struck down the other's blade, and replied with a straight thrust, which must infallibly have taken effect if his rapier had not been beaten from his grasp by Clement Lanier at the very moment it touched his adversary's breast. At the same time the young man's arms were grasped from behind by two of the Myrmidons, and he lay at his enemy's disposal. Sir Giles, however, sheathed his rapier, saying with a grim smile that he did not mean to deprive himself of the satisfaction of seeing his foe stand in the pillory and submit to the sworn torturer's knife, adding, it was somewhat strange that one who could guard his body so well should keep such indifferent watch over his tongue. Jocelyn made no reply to the sarcasm, and the knight was preparing to depart with his followers when a loud and tumultuous uproar proclaimed the approach of the apprentices. The posse of victorious youths made their way to the Bowling Green by the principal entrance, situated, as before mentioned, at a different point from the door by which the others had gained it. More apprehensive of losing his prisoner than concerned for his personal safety, for though the aggressive party greatly exceeded his own in numbers, he knew well how to deal with them, being accustomed to such encounters, Sir Giles gave some orders respecting Jocelyn de Clement Lanier, and then prepared to resist the onslaught by causing his band to form a solid square, those armed with bills and staves being placed in the foremost ranks. This disposition being quickly made, he drew his sword, and in a loud authoritative tone, commanded the apprentices to stand back. Such was the effect produced by his voice and the terrors of his countenance, which seldom failed to strike awe into beholders, that the intending rescuers came to a halt and showed some hesitation in engaging him. "'What means this disturbance?' thundered Sir Giles. "'And why do you offer to molest me in the execution of my duty? Know you not that assemblages like yours are unlawful and that you are liable to severe punishment?' unless you immediately disperse yourselves and peaceably depart to your own habitations? About your business, I say, and trouble me no longer. But first, I command you to deliver up your ringleaders, and especially those who, as I am told, have perpetuated the gross outrage and violence upon the person of Sir Francis Mitchell. An example shall be made of them. You waste your breath, Sir Giles, and your big words will avail you nothing with us, Dick Taverner replied. Now hear me in return. We, the bold and loyal apprentices of London, who serve our masters and our master's master, the King's Highness, well and truly, will not allow an unlawful arrest to be made by you or by any other man, and we command you peaceably to deliver up your prisoner to us, or by the rood we will take him forcibly from your hands. Out, insolent fellow, cried Sir Giles, thou wilt alter thy tune when thou art scourged at the cart's tail. You must catch me first, Sir Giles, replied Dick and two words will go to that. We have read Sir Francis Mitchell a lesson he is not likely to forget, and we will read you one, and you provoke us. We have a few old scores to wipe off. Aye, Mary, have we, cried an embroiderer's apprentice. 
These extortioners have ruined my master's trade by their gold and silver thread monopoly. Hundreds of worthy men have been thrown out of employment by their practices, said a vintner's prentice. We sell not half the wine we used to, and no wonder seeing two-thirds of the inns in London are shut up. The brewers will all be ruined, said a burly prentice with a wooden shovel over his shoulder, since every day a fresh alehouse is closed and no new licenses are granted. Moraine sees all such monopolists. They are worse than the fly in hops or smut in barley. Aye, plague take em, exclaimed Dick Taverner. They are as bad as the locusts of Egypt. When they have devoured the substance of one set of tradesfolk, they will commence upon that of another. No one is safe from them. It will be your turn next, Master Mercer. Yours after him, Master Ironmonger, however hard of digestion may be your wares. You will come third, Master Fishmonger. You fourth, Master Grocer. And when they are surfeited with spiceries and fish, they will fall upon you tooth and nail, Master Goldsmith. I trow not, cried the apprentice last appealed to. Our masters are too rich and too powerful to submit to such usage. The very reason they will undergo it, replied Dick. Their riches are only a temptation to plunder. I repeat, no man is safe from these extortioners. Since the law will not give us redress and put them down, we must take the law into our own hands. They shall have club law. Aye, aye, Prentice's law, club law, chorused the others. Sir Giles will make a star chamber matter of it. He will have us up before the council, laughed the goldsmith's prentice. He will buy a monopoly of cudgels to deprive us of their use, cried a bowyer. We will bestow that patent upon him gratis, quoth Dick, making his staff whistle round his head. The prisoner, gentlemen prentices, do not forget him, cried Cyprion, who, with two other serving men and the cook, had joined the assailing party. Madame Bonaventure implores you to effect his rescue. And so we will, my jovial Gascon, replied Dick. Come, Sir Giles, are we to have the young gentleman from you by force or free will? You shall have him in neither way, sirrah, the knight rejoined. You yourself shall bear him company in the fleet. Upon them, my men, and make for the door. And as the command was given, he and his troop made a sudden dash upon the prentices, who, unable to stand against the bills leveled against their breasts, gave way. Still, the gallant youths were by no means routed. Instantly closing upon their opponents, and being quite as nimble of foot as they, they contrived to cut off their retreat from the garden, and a sharp conflict took place between the parties as they came to close quarters near the entrance. Three of the Myrmidons were felled by Dick Taverner's cudgel, and at last, watching his opportunity, with both hands he launched a bowl which he had picked up at Sir Giles's head. If the missile had taken effect, the fight would have been over, but the knight avoided the blow by stooping down, and the bowl passing over him hit Lupo Volp full in the stomach, and brought him to the ground, deprived of breath. Meanwhile, Sir Giles, springing quickly forward, pinned the apprentice against the wall with his rapier's point. "'I have thee at last, knave,' he cried, seizing Dick by the collar, and delivering him to the custody of the Myrmidons nearest him. "'I told thee thou shouldst visit the fleet, and so thou shalt.' Notwithstanding the capture of their leader, the apprentices fought manfully, and it still appeared doubtful whether Sir Giles would be able to effect a retreat after all, embarrassed as he now was with two prisoners. Under these circumstances, he made a sign to Clement Lanier to withdraw with Jocelyn through the other door, ordering the two Myrmidons who had charge of Dick Taverner to follow him with their captive. It was no easy task to carry out the order, but the promoter managed to accomplish it. Single-handed, he drove back all who opposed his progress, while the two prisoners were borne towards the door by the men having them in custody. 
Hitherto, Jocelyn had made no attempt at self-liberation, awaiting, probably, the result of the prentice's efforts in his behalf, or some more favorable opportunity than had hitherto presented itself. On reaching the little court, the time for exertion seemed to become. Shaking off the myrmidons who pinioned him, and seizing a bill from one of them, he instantly stretched the fellow at his feet, and drove off his comrade. This done, he lent immediate assistance to Dick Taverner, setting him free, and arming him with as much promptitude as he had used to effect his own deliverance. While thus engaged, he received no interruption from Clement Lanier, though, if he had chosen, the promoter might no doubt have effectually opposed him. But Lanier either was, or feigned to be, engaged with some skirmishers at the door, and it was only when both the prisoners had got free that he rushed towards them, loudly reprehending the men for their carelessness. But if they were to blame, he was no less so, for he showed little address in following the fugitives, and managed to take a wrong turn in the passage, which led both him and the Myrmidons astray, so that the prisoners got clear off. How Jocelyn and Dick Taverner contrived to reach the Ventry Wharf, neither of them very distinctly knew. Such was the hurried manner in which they passed through the tavern. But there they were, precisely at the moment that Sir Giles Mompesson, having fought his way through all opposition, issued from the porch at the head of his band. Quite satisfied with his previous encounter with the redoubtable knight, and anxious to escape before his evasion should be discovered, Dick beckoned to his companion, and making all the haste they could to the stairs, they both jumped into the nearest wherry, when the apprentice ordered the two watermen within it to row for their lives to London Bridge. End of chapter 12